So Money Episode 695, Ask Farnoosh, with special co-host, Certified Financial Planner, Amy Irvine. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Happy Friday, Friday, February 23rd, 2018. We had some pretty spectacular episodes this week. In case you missed them, we had Monday... Abby Walker, who is the author of Strap on a Pair, and she's also the CEO of Vivian Liu, which is this incredible company that sells super comfortable insoles for women's heels. She talks about how she left the corporate world and basically reinvented her career. It started with a blog that she was just doing to kind of keep sane, have a creative outlet, and uh, the rest is history. And then On Wednesday, Josh Robbins, who is the son of Tony Robbins, joined us, and he's all about helping us save money in our 401ks, helping us arrive in retirement with more money in our bank accounts, and had to ask him, what was it like growing up with Tony Robbins as your head of household? You might be interested to hear what he has to say. By the way, anyone out there wanting to write a book? Is anyone out there interested in turning their expertise into a platform through a best-selling book? Because as you may know, uh, for the past couple of years now, I've been running these live workshops in New York City, workshops that I host, and then I bring on uh, amazing people from the publishing and media world and literary world to help maybe someone like you, an entrepreneur, an expert, come up with the great idea for the book, show you how to do it, and then also show you how to leverage it to allow yourself to get really known as the go-to expert in your field, get tons of media, speaking engagements, brand partnerships, TV opportunities. It's a lot of fun, but it's a very small group that I coach once, maybe twice a year. So would love to invite you to apply if this is you or could be you, go to booktobrand.co. We have a couple of spots left. Just thought I would share that on the podcast. I haven't been doing a lot of promotion on this podcast, but figured, hey, if anyone out there is listening or know somebody who needs to write that important, life-changing, prescriptive book, whether you're, gosh, I don't know, an accountant or a veterinarian or a chef, you have an expertise and you want to share your message with the world, let me know. Let's talk. Go to booktobrand.co and you can apply and book a time to chat with me. But Moving on, we have an incredible co-host today. As you know, I love inviting listeners onto the show to co-host, and I'm happy to say that this person is not just a super fan of So Money, but she's also highly qualified to co-host with me. She's a certified financial planner, self-described money nerd, Amy Irvine. Amy, welcome to the show, and tell us a little bit about your obsession with money. I love it. Well, thank you for having me. And yes, unfortunately, my entire family has had to listen to me talk about money and numbers, um, math for pretty much my entire life. Um, My 
younger siblings, especially my brother, was really uh, pushed in the direction of learning math. I used to sit at a sit him at a little desk and be this teacher that stood at a, a chalkboard and actually um, make him sit through math class when he was when he was younger. And it's so funny because his youngest son is very similar to me. So I often wonder if uh, if he's truly my brother's child or if he's somehow really directly more related to me. But money and numbers are are really something I've always enjoyed. And I, I don't think a lot of people are surprised about the career path that I chose because of that. All right. So tell us a little bit about who you like to work with. And while we have you, what's your best piece of advice for us? What is something that a lot of your clients come to you with? A concern, a situation that you find yourself trying to fix or trying to guide them time and time again? I think right now the biggest problem is just figuring out how to um, how to get competing goals in alignment with each other. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the clients that I work with are in their late 30s to mid 40s, and they're still carrying some student loan debt, maybe some credit card debt. They have mortgages, and they're thinking about the fact that their kids are going to be going to college. So how is it that they can plan for retirement, plan to pay down debt, plan to get their education expenses paid for, and somehow help their kids with their own educational expenses? And then I think right now a big question is, how is this new tax law going to affect all of that and affect me, you know, going forward into 2018? So it's it's a challenging time, I think, from that aspect. You know, I was just on the phone earlier today with somebody who um, who specializes in providing financial education to 16 to 22-year-olds through a, a nonprofit organization. And we were saying, you know, it's not like most of our education system provides financial education in high schools. It might be an elective that somebody can take, but it's not like a required gym class or English or math or anything like that. Financial education isn't given in that manner. So we're all expected to go out into this wild world of life and we don't have the basics a lot don't. And so then we get into our 40s. And we start to look at, gee, I wish I had known, or I probably didn't do that the way I should have, or what are my options? So I, you know, from my perspective, what I see most often is just how do I figure out these competing goals? How do I figure out how to afford these competing goals and put it all together? It's crazy. My heart totally goes out to everybody who is saddled with student loan debt. We actually had a couple on So Money recently, the Darkos, amazing episode. Renee and Nee Darko, two doctors, married couple, $660,000 combined in student loan debt. They somehow paid it off in three years. That is a bit of an outlier story. Most of us don't have that much money, but even if you have like 60000 it's a lot. So what hope, what sense of optimism can we give listeners and anyone who's out there feeling strapped with their debt that that they can overcome this and actually have a life, you know, a life that includes gosh, settling down, vacations, uh, you know, worthwhile experiences, family, etc. Well, I generally ask people a very specific question when we first start 
working together. And it's, if money wasn't a barrier, let's kind of take that off the table right now. And let's just say, if money wasn't a barrier, what would you change in your life? And once they tell me that answer, then everything else, all the other direction that's given kind of goes back to that particular item. So if they say to me, if money wasn't a barrier, I'd pay off my debt. So that's your priority. So let's figure out how to achieve that, right? Let's look at what your spending is. Let's take a peek at your your bank statements and your credit card statements. And I, I use three highlighters in a lot of those cases. I tell people to look at three highlighters or pull out three highlighters and take one highlighter and highlight everything that you don't think you have a lot of control over, like your mortgage and your loans and those sort of things. And then take a second highlighter and go down through and highlight things that you have a little bit of control over, like groceries, um, you know, maybe a little bit on the utility side. And then take a third highlighter and highlight everything that you have complete control over. Take a look at what's left. Take a take a look of something that you do, all of the items that aren't highlighted. You don't need it and you don't want it. And you can completely probably control it. So what's left? And can we use some of those resources that are left? Because remember, you didn't know, you just bought it. You didn't really, really want it and you didn't really need it. So what are those resources left and how can we apply it towards that particular goal that you just said to me, whether it's, you know, paying down debt or saving additional money in your retirement plan. So we try to take it in baby steps, I would say, because once you get that first goal, okay, well, what's the second one? And sometimes it's a priority, like something that's really pending that needs immediate attention, then we have to focus on that. But this is amazing advice. So everybody is putting pencil to paper here, or you're typing in your phone. Tell us what maybe some of these surprising things that we can control. Can't control a lot, right? Can't control the price of food and our boss who refuses to give us a raise for who knows whatever reason. What are some examples of surprising things that we can control the costs of easily that you share with your clients that has been transformative for them? Well, for example, let's say your mortgage payment is, you know, 40% of what your monthly budget is. And if we look at that and I say, well, what if, you know, what is it about this home that you have such a deep connection in? And I know our home is in many places, uh, there are many, many situations, the place that feeds our soul, right? So I'm not asking people to give it up, but if your home is is such a big expense, what are the other alternatives? Let's have a conversation about that. Or if gas is, you know, you, you know, something that you're really spending a ton of money on getting back and forth to work, are there alternatives to uh, sh- sharing uh, like carpooling or taking public transportation or, could you talk to your boss about working from home a couple days a week? Uh, that's not possible in every job, but you know it's a possibility in some cases. What I see in some cases is childcare. I have I sometimes I think, oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong career. What what people pay for childcare is extraordinary. Uh, what are the options within that? Because that's that's a really that's a really important aspect of life, who you leave your children with as an extension 
of you to a certain extent, right? So, but it's very, very expensive. And I see it eating up some significant amounts of people's budgets. And so talking through what could be done in that respect uh, to, to lower those expenses, what are the alternatives? What are the options? And sometimes just having a conversation about it brings things to light. It's just people sometimes do things because that's what everybody else is doing. Oh, yeah. Keeping up with the Joneses. Okay, let's shift gears now to listeners' questions, beginning with Angel. He says, what is our advice on index funds and ETFs? Right now, he has a mutual fund with the bank that has a 2% return. And through research, he sees that index funds have 6 to 9% returns, and he wants his savings to grow. So what do we recommend? It could be that his mutual fund just is not having a great year, and that's why it's a 2% return. The returns for index funds and ETFs historically over stretches of time, not just one year, but we're talking, you know, decades, I have seen the, the reports of 6 to 9%. The benefit, the real benefit to an index fund or an ETF versus something like a mutual fund or just a mixed bag of stocks is that the maintenance fees, the management fees rather, are lower much lower. Index funds track an index, whereas uh, mutual funds can be very actively managed by a person, and then you got to pay that person. So I think that if you have, if you're kind of not impressed with the mutual fund that you have, you can chime in here, Amy. I, I think an index fund or an ETF is a better, more economical way to go. No, I absolutely agree. And one of the things that stood out to me in that question is in our industry, the language that's used often is extremely confusing to people because we have so many terms that sound very similar. So when I first um, read that question, I thought, I wonder if he means a money market fund is getting 2% versus a mutual fund getting 2%. Hmm. Yeah, the I difference that was kind of low for a mutual fund. Yeah, and and then I wondered, well, maybe it is a mutual fund, but maybe it's a bond mutual fund. So maybe it's not a stock mutual right, fund right. or an equity mutual fund. So absolutely agree with the idea behind index funds. I, I, you know, I I am a big believer that, especially if Angel has a like you said, twenty or thirty years or even ten years looking at options that are focused on the S&P 500 as a broad market or even a balanced fund that's an indexed balanced fund. Vanguard is one of the companies I often recommend because of the balanced fund. They do manage it a little bit. So there's a little bit of active management in there, just a tad bit, but their fees are still very, very, very low. And so, you know, that would be one sort of middle of the road um, mutual fund that you could choose, but even better would be go out, would be to go out there and get an exchange traded fund or those ETFs that would be, you know, 0.07% versus say a, a actively managed stock mutual fund that might be 0.75 or even 0.5. Or and one. I've seen over amazing. 1% for some. Some of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, yeah, and watch watch your watch your share class on that just as a FYI with with mutual funds um, just real quick if something has a C after it understand that that's a an additional one percent charge that you're getting um, hit with and so something that could charge one percent could actually end up charging two percent because of that share class so be real cautious about that 
So share class C is the one that costs more money. That's that's the one to remember. That's a, that's the thing to remember. Wow. Okay. So you just saved us a lot of money, Amy. Thank you very much. Let's check out Kevin's question. He says, what's your advice regarding the stock market? Specifically, once it starts to correct itself or crash, how do I protect my gains from the last seven, eight years? Where should I safeguard it? I I would say just hang in there, right? Don't go anywhere. You know, I look at it two ways. I stay in the game myself and I usually recommend, recommend my clients to stay in the game. If somebody, somebody needs money you know, for something within a short term period of time, like a year, then we do take it and we put it aside and, and kind of say, you know, we know we're not going to get a lot on it, but if the market corrects, we don't have to worry about not having what we need. But the other way that I look at a, a market correction is that it, it just went on sale. So I, I joke with people, I love shoes love them. That is my weak spot. Absolutely cannot go into the shoe store. (laughs) I have to have an envelope for my shoe spending because that's the only way I can control it. When I go into a shoe store and I see two for one, I don't just buy one. I buy two, right? I get two. And when the market corrects itself, that's the way I look at it. It just went on sale. I, you know, before it went on sale, I could only buy one pair of, um, or one, you know, share of a particular uh, ETF or mutual fund. Now I can actually buy two or one and a half or whatever the correction might be. So I tend to get very excited when the market has a correction because I look at it as an opportunity to take new money and, and get it working for me and, um, you know, really if you don't, if we don't time the market over time, it actually shows that you're much better off than if you try to time the market getting out and getting in. Thanks, Amy. And Kevin, let us know if you have any more questions about this. I think that he's echoing what a lot of people, investors are thinking, voicing right now. We're looking at 2018 with a lot of uncertainty politically, financially, economically. And, but as you pointed out, Amy, earlier in the show, there are still things that are within our control, how we spend, how we budget, how we negotiate. And that's very empowering. Yeah. What are those goals and how close to you, to you needing the money for something have you become? And if you're starting to get within, you know, a certain window, it's probably wise to, to sit back and say, well, how much would I need if there was a correction? Mm. You know, what, what would I need liquid over a couple of years if there was a collection or, or a year or whatever it might be? Okay, Amy, we want to round out Ask Farnoosh with two questions from listeners regarding negotiating your salary at work. Leah writes and she says, what's our advice on asking for a raise while working for a nonprofit? She says, I know our budgets are tight right now and all salaries come from donations. That's tough. I mean, it's one thing to negotiate at a for-profit company where, you know, they can always find a way, right, to move some money around to pay you more if they value you. At nonprofits, it's it is. She's right. The budgets are tight. It's very much beholden to how much they bring in from donations. I think Leah, if you've had a really outstanding year and that you can correlate your role at the at the nonprofit to directly to an influx of donations 
then I think you have a pretty compelling case there. If your presence and your productivity has been directly linked to more money coming into the nonprofit, I think that's worth mentioning, but it's going to be tough. I think that's going to be a harder conversation than, say, someone working um, at Google. (laughs) I know that she's saying that budgets are tight and salaries come from donations, but I also think that it's really important to sit down with the organization and, and to sit down with yourself and say, you know, am I in love? Is this my passion? Is there, is this the job that I am in love with? And is this where I want to be? And ask the questions about, is there going to be additional resources available? Uh, If you are absolutely in love with your job, if you couldn't see yourself doing anything other than what you're doing now, is, is the organization that you're with the only organization that will do that? Are there opportunities someplace else? I mean, asking for a raise is tough. I, in a non in any job, especially a non for profit, though, because they're saying often that you know budgets are are somewhat limited. And I think asking them where they foresee other opportunities coming your way, and sometimes it means doing a side hustle, even. Yes, you know, I love the side hustle, and, and I would add that. You know, sometimes it's not just about the money. Sometimes if you can negotiate more flexible work schedule so that perhaps you can work from home a couple of days a week, that saves you commuting time, but also maybe frees up a little bit of time in your day to pursue a side hustle. And again, going back to putting things in your control, a side hustle you can control far more than you know perhaps your nonprofit's ability to give you a raise. You can probably make more money faster that way. Think about ways you can leverage your skills, the ways that you can make money from the stuff that you have. You can rent your gear out. You can rent a spare bedroom. You can rent your bicycle. You can walk dogs on the weekends. There are a lot of ways now that people are finding easy side hustles. It's really about what you like to do and what time you have. And the web, the internet is a great connector for people who want to start making money quickly. You know, maybe you babysit for a couple hours in the evening or anything like that. I, it's amazing what uh, what people can earn in, in today's world on on those types of jobs. I I haven't I don't have children and I and I don't know the costs associated with some of that. But I was told the other day that the on average somebody can earn easily ten dollars an hour. Um, doing some evening daycare. <laughs> at least. Babysitting is where it is at, especially if you live in a city here in New York. As a parent now, I pay handsomely to babysitters. And when I was actually babysitting in my 20s, because that's that was one of my premier hu- side hustles, I earned, and by the way, this was a, like a decade ago, I think I earned anywhere from $13 to $20 an hour, depending on the number of children. The more kids, obviously, the more money. The parents would always pay for my cab ride home. They would pay for dinner. And bonus, the kids would go to bed early. So I had all this free time in the evening. And I actually used that couple of hours every babysitting shift to write and wrote my first book, primarily thanks to a lot of downtime during babysitting. So uh, I'm really a proponent of that. All right. Last but not least, we have a question here sticking with negotiating from an anonymous 
anonymous fan on Instagram. And by the way, if you're not following me on Instagram, please join in on the fun. I've been doing a lot of storytelling. You can see the behind the scenes of my personal life, my professional life, my everything. So if you want to connect with me there, I would love to see you. And by the way, it's a great way to connect with me quickly. People have been messaging me through Instagram. And since I'm there a lot, I get back to you quite quickly. Anyway, I digress. But this is somebody from Instagram who writes, how do I continue my salary negotiations when I've already had the conversation about 10 times and I keep hearing, yes, you're in line once the budget frees up. All the while, this person says, this poor person says they've expanded his or her role and workload. <sighs> Come on. Hey, it's time to look for a new job. Am I right, Amy? I do. That was my exact thought that um, unless you're unless you're geographically tied to this area or this job or it is, uh, you know, the dream job that you've always, always, always wanted and you don't think you're ever going to find anything. Uh, well, I would even question that because I think there's probably, you know, there's other companies that would probably take advantage of your skill set. But if you've asked 10 times and you keep being told the same line, I think it's time to start shopping as well. Yeah, I would give your employer one more chance. And this time go in the meeting asking for, politely asking for some sort of timeline. You know, are they are they thinking that the budgets are going to free up in three months, six months, never? And I think that, you know, you can phrase it as, uh, say this to your boss, you know, I think that by now it's no surprise that I you know, really want to move upward in this company, that I've been really persistent, and I just want to know what, you know, what is ahead. If there is no upward trajectory, then I would appreciate knowing that sooner than later. And, and I think that at this point, you are allowed to show some disappointment. Come on, you know, and put your cards out there a little bit. Let them know that you're getting impatient. I'm getting impatient for you. <laughs> and simultaneous to you having this, you know, last conversation with your employer, if you feel comfortable doing it and you're motivated, update your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, I think it's important too when you go into the next meeting, you know, to sit down ahead of time and say, you know, here's here's a list of all the things that I've done right? All of the, 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 how my role has been expanded and what additional workload I've taken on. And, you know, maybe even do a little search about what the, the salary figure is that goes along with all of those skill sets. So that when you go into the meeting, you can actually say, you know, I've been, I've been taking on all this additional responsibility. My role is expanded. I know the budgets are tight right now, but I really would you like I would really like you to consider giving me a raise of X dollars. I think the market justifies that. I think my work justifies that. I think my expanded role justifies that. If somebody said that to me, I would have to I'd have to sit back and say, okay, well, I, I you know, what do I have? What do I have on the on the budget line to, to try to figure out what to give you differently. You're, you're going in with data. That's right. The numbers don't lie. And as parting advice, I would say, and I've talked about this on the show before, but it is worth mentioning again, go into your human resources office, ask the manager for your position's salary band. And what does this number represent? It's basically what your company has budgeted for your position. Sometimes it's called a salary band. Other times it's salary range. 
it will give you some really important context and perspective. So if you're, say, making $60,000 a year and you discover that your salary range is you know, fifty-five dollars to $95,000 per year, that means you're very much still on the lower end of that salary range. And if your work is above and beyond, then I think that's going to be some really compelling data to present to your manager. So try that and let us know how things go. Amy, this is where we part, but I'm loving so much talking to you. Please come back and thank you so much for joining me and sharing all your fantastic professional advice, showing us how we can save money. And uh, also do let us know how we can find you. Well, you can find me out on my website, which is irvineadvise.com. That's one way. Certainly you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I'm usually, uh, usually around in the XY planning network as well. So um, lots of avenues to be able to, to reach out to me. Uh, my email address is amy at irvineadvise. If you have any questions, feel free to send them that out there as well. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. Looking forward to having you back. And everybody, you know how to reach me, right? Go to somoneypodcast.com. You can send me your question by clicking on Ask Farnoosh. There also, you can let me know if you're interested in co-hosting. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi, one word. Follow me there. Send me your messages there, your questions, your interest in co-hosting. If you, by the way, also want to write a book, a prescriptive nonfiction book, and you need some help and you want me to help you, go to booktobrand.co, learn a little bit about the live workshop I'm hosting later this spring. Thanks again to our guest, Amy Irvine, and hope everyone's weekend is so money. Money.